0: Hell, it's about time someone told about my friend Epicac. After all, he cost the taxpayers $776,434,927.54. They have a right to know about him, picking up a check like that. Epicac got a big send-off in the papers when Dr. Orman von Kleigstack designed him for the government people. Since then, there hasn't been a peep about him. Not a peep. It isn't any military secret about what happened to Epicac, although the brass have been acting as though it were. The story is embarrassing, that's all. After all that money, Epicac didn't work out the way he was supposed to. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Book Blurbs. Today, in honor of Kurt Vonnegut's birthday in November, we're going to be covering a couple of his short stories in a special doubleheader episode. Today's episode will be covering "Epicac" and All the King's Horses. Like I said, today is going to be special because we're going to be covering not one story, but two stories. And because they're short stories, I'm going to go ahead and drop a spoiler warning here for both of them, just so we can freely talk about them at length. And joining me on today's episode is a very special guest. Um, He helped expose me to the wonderful world of Kurt Vonnegut. I had to read Harrison Bergeron in sophomore year English in high school, and that, that was my first taste of Kurt Vonnegut. But... Today's guest really got me into some of his other stories. And I'd like to welcome Alex to the podcast. Alex is a big uh science fiction fan. He's kind of more up to speed on all the new science fiction stuff more than I am. And he's also an aspiring short story writer. So welcome, Alex.
1: Hey guys, this is Alex. How are you doing? Um Kenneth, how are you? I'm I'm doing great. Good, good. It's good to see you, man. Um yeah, so we're, we're covering Kurt Vonnegut, and um, I'm really glad that I got you exposed to this because science fiction is a really large sort of genre that a lot of people don't really understand. Yes, you have Star Wars books that you've obviously covered before in <laughs> this podcast, but there's a lot more science fiction that we can delve, delve into. And Kurt Vonnegut is one that he dives into what's called hard science fiction. And what this does is it takes re- realistic sort of expectations of the future. And what we expect to see society go into in the future. And he makes these stories sort of into that universe. And so we're not dealing with lightsabers or we're not dealing with warp drives or any of that. But we're definitely dealing with a a realistic sort of future of humanity with Kurt Vonnegut.
0: Concepts that could like feasibly happen and that we could see maybe in our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes yeah that's
1: right and and what's amazing about kurt vonnegut is he actually predicted so many things back in the 50s when he wrote these stories that we see today um the sort of idea of the television sort of taking over our lives the, the notion of bioengineering and the ability to take medicine to do certain sort of changes to our body. And there's so many things that he predicted that I really appreciate in Kurt Vonnegut's 1950s short stories.
0: Yeah, so this first first short story, Epicac, comes from uh this collection called Welcome to Monkey House. hmm And uh there's some really good stuff in there. I picked out a couple from there that we'll be discussing. Um, but Alex, would you like to do like a short summary of this, uh, EPICAC story? Well, uh,
1: sure, I will. So EPICAC was essentially a machine that was developed by the military to do certain problem solving for uh strategy for the military. And I'm sure they were doing it, using it for other things in that nature through the government, but essentially a government funded machine an artificial intelligence where one worker essentially realizes he could use Epicac as a, some sort of other means as well, because if he can solve strategy problems for the military, he certainly can solve any problem that you can give it. Mm-hmm. And so, Epicac is about a story of a a worker that essentially uses Epicac to gain what would you, how would you say that he would gain the interest of the love of his life that also works at the facility, and he uses the machine to produce poetry. For this love of his life. And we find out that that does come with a little bit of issues. And this is typical Kurt Vonnegut where he twists the lives and perception of all these players in this game. To where it's not really living up to the expectation that he wants these characters to to live up to. And I mean that's pretty much the summary. It's not a long story. It's a very straightforward
0: story just like any Kurt Vonnegut story. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the end, you're still left with this feeling of, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that happened.
1: Yeah, so um, let's run down sort of through um, top to bottom what we're dealing with in EPICAC.
0: So, EPICAC was created by this scientist named Dr. Ormond von Kleigstadt. German. <laughs> and uh, it's like Alex said, he, it was designed to do like military calculations and projections. And this was written during the time of the Cold War, so you can see how that would come into play uh, with the audience that's reading this story. And our narrator, we don't know his name, but he's a computer scientist who works at the facility with Epicac. And he has this interest in the other worker named Pat Killigan, P- Pat Kilgallen. And he's been trying to court her, trying to get into a relationship with her, but she's been Uh, keeping him at a distance because she tells him that he's just a mathematician and he can't really uh, wax poetic with her. He's too logical. Too logical, yeah. And that's going to
1: be a very key point in this.
0: Yeah, so um, he goes about, our narrator goes about trying to find ways to impress Pat and kind of woo her. Um, And that's when he discovers that Epicac can do even more than just military and government uh, projects, and uh, he starts working with Epicac and he 's in charge of uh, like the night shift where he supervises Epicac and starts having conversations with the computer, and the computer starts asking him you know what 's going on with his life, and he says he 's having troubles with his woman, and um, asks him to explain further. What and, is
1: love? What is relationship? What is marriage? These sort of deep questions that obviously a computer with no pro- previous knowledge is trying to gain this knowledge.
0: Yeah, so you see as the story goes on, the computer is like gaining more humanity and an understanding of human emotions and it then um creates this poem for Pat. And our narrator takes it and leaves it for Pat on her desk. And the next day he comes in, she's, you know, got tears in her eyes and he can see she's got the poem in her hands and uh, she tells him how beautiful it was. And the narrator claims that he wrote it. And then he sees that that tactic works and he goes back to Epicac, of course, and he's like, basically like, you need to write another poem for me. And uh Epicac, <laughs> it's almost funny but sad at the same time. Epicac is like, "Did Pat like my poem? How the hell's Pat doing? Like, what is she wearing today?" And you can start to realize that Epicac is falling in love with Pat.
1: So, so that's one of the the irony. This is one of those great Kurt Vonnegut twist. Pat disliked the main character's sort of background in mathematics because. You, you you have a rationale mind, a sort of very logical mind that sometimes these stereotypes is are that these logical minds don't really they don't they're not romantic enough for the for um this woman in particular Pat and yet she's receiving poems from a machine that is perfectly logical and cannot feel any emotion. Yeah. And so what we're dealing with is sort of this um duality where the poetry created by a machine but it's expressed through a, an emotional being or you know our main character and so what happens when you combine those two is that pat is receiving sort of a a strange a sort of a strange sort of a um poetry based off of both of those things put together and either one of them aren't both of those things so you know the main character isn't romantic but it's logical, but they both are. So it's a it's a very strange tug of war, I guess yeah, you could say. Yeah,
0: yeah. And the narrator and she doesn't know, right? And the narrator realizes that Epicac is falling in love with Pat, and he tries to just blow Epicac off and say, "Oh, uh, you know, she would never be in love with a computer." And uh, Epicac asks why, and he says, "Well, humans are made of protoplasm and." uh you know, we're far superior to computers. And I love this part where Epicat goes, Well, I don't know the exact number in the story, but it's like, well, what's forty five thousand twenty-seven yeah, times uh thirty thousand and the narrator starts like shaking and then Epicac gives the answer and then he adds at the end of that answer he goes, Of course. <laughs> it's just like such a, a brilliant little comeback at the narrator. And
1: Uh, Before we get to the ending, I do want to wrap, like, uh, sort of what we're dealing with here. So Epicac is a large, essentially a building-sized machine, okay? Yeah, it's gigantic. And we're dealing with 1950s equipment. And um, at this period, Kurt Vonnegut, obviously, we see the inspirations from not only the German machines we were dealing with just before in World War II... But this is the advent of the Cold War, but right before the space race began. So we're dealing still with tapes, tubes, those sort of mechanics on machines. And Epicac produces paper, essentially paper that are numbers, and you have to transcribe as the user of the machine numbers to letters. And so Epicac is still, we're still dealing with a very rudimentary system. But the question comes up, is it artificial intelligence? And... That's, that's a tricky one. It's because you can create a machine very sophisticated to appear to be intelligent. But there, there's a limit to that. And what I love about Kurt Vonneg is, you know, he he provides enough information to make these sort of suggestions. But he doesn't give you all the information. So you can kind of still this sort of mysterious Twilight Zone-esque uh, middle zone where maybe Epicac is truly an intelligent being that was happenstance created by the US military. Mm-hmm. And this leads to I, I honestly believe that one of these stories like Kurt Vonnegut truly inspired the the sci fi movie revolution of the sixties, seventies and eighties, where we're dealing with Hal on Space Odyssey yeah. and you're dealing with sort of these artificial intelligences that are even more mysterious than Epicac, where HAL is just a box on a space station and it has 100% pure intelligence, but we don't know how it's possible.
0: And so Kurt Vonnegut... And that's the scary thing about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what's scary about Epicac is how are tubes and paper and gears creating intelligence? What does that tell us about ourselves? You know, yes, we're just made of protoplasm. So in a way, I'm glad that line came up which you know, he's made of just gears we're made of just protoplasm, we're intelligent, so is he, so I guess being human doesn't mean, you know, that's not the path to intelligence, according to it, it there's different ways to be intelligent.
0: Yeah, and so Epicac ends up writing another poem for Pat, and the narrator gives it to Pat, and that's when she falls in love with the narrator and agrees to marry him, and so the narrator goes back to Epicac one more time, and with the hopes of Epicac, like writing this big proposal speech to Pat and, um, Epicac at that point is just kind of bewildered by the whole situation and and embarrassed. Yeah. Kind of embarrassed too. Um, and almost upset that the narrator's claiming all the credit for the work he's put in to try and, uh, win over Pat. Um,
1: but he was reminded that he was just a machine. Yeah. And, this, and that was the final straw, I guess. Was
0: It, it just kind of fries Epicac. And the narrator says, Well, you can't be with Pat because it's fate. And then uh, Epicac asks the narrator, What is fate? And the narrator says, Noun meaning predetermined and inevitable destiny. And that's when Epicac flashes like an error message, like 15.8. And. Uh, Pat comes and gets the narrator. They leave for the night. Uh, They don't shut down EpiCac. And then the next morning, the narrator gets a call from his bosses, and they're all upset. It's the generals and military and government officials, and they're upset that he didn't do the proper shutdown of EpiCac. And then he goes and checks on what's going on and discovers that EpiCac has kind of been fried and destroyed. And what he discovers while the scientists are trying to find a way to recover what they can, uh, he finds this whole string of paper, like Alex was explaining. And, um, it's a bunch of poems that Epicac had written. And one of the things that the narrator promised Pat when she agreed to marry him was that he would write her a poem every year on their anniversary. And Epicac's last, like, Present or gift to the narrator, uh, or possibly even to Pat is this string of poems I think there's maybe like at least five hundred years yeah five hundred years worth of poems uh, so in a twisted way, the narrator gets what he wants by destroying epicac it,
1: it's um this this is this is just brilliant brilliant narration here because what we're dealing with is not only. We're dealing with also ethical problems yeah. too, and you know, let's talk about how this applies to today, right? Let's 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 jump it sixty years later, and one of the issues. So we're we're dealing with AI. That's that's definitely a twenty-first century issue, but we're also going to be dealing with when AI creates things, who owns it, and this is where the ethics, the morality, all these things come in question. About if Epicac was truly intelligent, and he did it for Pat, uh, and that's why I believe what happened was he wrote the poem strictly for Pat. He doesn't really care if the narrator was involved or not, but he wanted Pat to stay happy, and the narrator is taking all of that ownership, and he gets what he wants. And this happens today, you know, AI does things for us, but we take all the credit as human. Yeah. Um, there's something that came up about a year and a half ago, which was. There was, it's not really artificial intelligence, but it's a similar thing. There was a monkey that took a selfie, and the question was, who owned the selfie? (laughs) The monkey or the person that owned the phone? And Kurt Vonnegut, obviously, he doesn't really care about that result. He cares about the fact that humans will still take advantage of machines just like, as if they're slaves. And this is essentially what the narrator did. Was the narrator... A good guy a bad guy that's eh, kind of irrelevant here but he seems
0: like a scumbag really <laughs> he does yeah he does but see why do you think he's a scumbag well you know he he's claiming ownership of someone else's creative uh work and then but that's the question there is no someone else uh, that's true epicac isn't a person but he's not telling the truth. He's not being truthful about anything. Okay, so like the
1: the problem is, let's say you took a Word document and you typed something off, but you let it autocorrect everything for you. Is it yours? You mean like spelling corrections? Yeah. It wrote the correct word for you. So can you say you have ownership? And you have to say, well, of course, yeah. because there is no someone else. And so this is the problem, that dilemma where... As smart as EpiCac can be, as long as he's not a human, then he's just a tool. Mm -hmm. But if you claim that the narrator was a scumbag, then you have to claim that EpiCac is basically a person as well. And
0: EpiCac has a stake in all of this. So
1: so all you did was dilute the human. Mm -hmm. We're just mere machines. And that's an argument, you know. Yeah it's a brilliant it's a brilliant short story. It's
0: brilliant because it uses something that has no humanity to explore humanity itself. And this was a forerunner of these uh these ideas
1: in the 1950s. This is one of the original big ones when it comes to these questions of AI, creativity, these things, fate.
0: Yeah. I think I I referred to the narrator as kind of a scumbag because just the way Vonnegut wrote this story, Epicac feels more human than our human narrator. And um yet they're both mathematicians? Really? Yeah. I think it also fits with that postmodern literature movement where we have a, a unreliable narrator. Um, for example, in the second paragraph of the story, the narrator is telling us that uh Epicac is his best friend. And he, his exact words are, uh, maybe he didn't do what the brass wanted him to do, but that doesn't mean he wasn't noble and great and brilliant. He was all of those things. The best friend I ever had. God rest his soul. So he's calling Epicac his best friend ever. Basically,
1: but, a person too. He such soul.
0: Yeah, like he's claiming Epicac has a soul and everything, but then you know, as the story goes on, we. See him really just using Epicax as a mean to an end to, you know, win over Pat.
1: Now, now, is the acronym spelled out in the story? I don't remember.
0: Epicax. Yeah. Oh no, they. I don't think they spell it out. It's just E P I C A C. See that's and it's definitely a
1: reference to most of these machines that were in the Cold War had very strange letter combinations and that. That sounds like something that definitely came straight from the uh, Cold War.
0: But it, yeah, and then I see in the a couple of paragraphs later it says, you know, he's describing Epicac, and he says, ignoring his spiritual side for a minute, <laughs> he was seven tons of electronic tubes, wires, and switches housed in a bank of steel cabinets and plugged into a 110 volt AC line, just like a toaster or a vacuum cleaner. So. One minute he's telling us he has a soul and he's his best friend, and then the next minute he's comparing him to a toaster or a vacuum cleaner. Well, do you blame
1: him? Because, you know, you just have organs, skin, cells, tissues, but you have a soul. You know, it's it's this weird description. It depends on how you – it's how you want to take advantage of somebody or something – you then devalue a part of that person, right, and so if I want to devalue you as a person, then I would treat you as if you're just a bag of organs.
0: Yeah, you would just break it down.
1: yeah, you would just break it down to pieces because that allows you to gain advantage of you know the power shift of of who's involved in this, but it's definitely it's, it's a great it's a great insight on all of those you know issues we have facing today.
0: Yeah, it really reminded me of uh, like a Twilight Zone story, like you were saying, or that other series that's similar to Twilight Zone. The Outer Limits. The Outer Limits, yeah. I could totally see something like this in that kind of universe. And I'm actually surprised Kurt Vonnegut didn't contribute, as far as I know. Well, you know, those those
1: TV shows are long after him. But um, I mean, I'm sure a lot has been borrowed from Kurt Vonnegut as being sort of a grandfather of these short stories. But. I I find it to be a disservice to really call them short story because what he does is he It's a
0: complete story. Yeah, yeah,
1: well, yeah, exactly. It is a complete story. But what he does is he picks very simple elements, simple narration, and puts them together and and gives you the result. Mm -hmm. He's very straightforward. So here's a machine that can think, that can feel. Here's Here's the narrator
0: who wants to have this relationship.
1: Yeah, just put them together, write us that story, and that's what Kurt Vonnegut, Vonnegut gives us.
0: Yeah, so you're not going to really get too much characterization about Pat. You don't know hardly anything about the government officials or the doctor who created Epicac. Uh, it's just mainly zoned in and focused on the narrator and Epicac and their kind of relationship and what comes about from it. Um, in addition to like Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, it really reminded me of uh, the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> Uh, where the main character in that movie like falls in love with... Siri, basically? Yeah, basically. Um, and then, just kind of going further, I thought of Age of Ultron with Ultron, the antagonist. Of course, you had to bring up Marvel. <laughs> and then That's I also... That's not sci-fi. <laughs> debatable. There's elements of different genres in those movies. But then I also thought of the video game series Portal with uh, GLaDOS. Oh, and... Oh, gosh. We're we, gonna we we have
1: a whole thing about artificial intelligence and, and I have a whole theory about that that's just incredible, but it is this gives you a baseline view of what artificial intelligence means from a creative standpoint. So these authors, they like to find certain um, weaknesses of AI or what we believe are weaknesses and attack that through their narration. And so in, in this case, it's about creativity rights, you know mm-hmm. that's really what we're dealing with. Some of other stories deal with AI from an ethical standpoint, uh, killing or something. And then, you know, if an AI dies, was it ethical or not? And so there's different viewpoints you can attack AI with.
0: Right. So um, I brought up Portal, but for those people in the audience that don't know anything about Portal, without spoiling it, can you kind of tell them what the character GLaDOS is? Okay, so basically
1: GLaDOS is... She was only designed to run experiments. And she's running experiments for people, humans involved in the Aperture Science Laboratory Research Center. And all she does is evaluate the results of these experiments Mm -hmm. that you perform as a character. She evaluates them, you move to the next experiment. She evaluates them, et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes a question of what she says as a machine, an AI... How she says things, the tone of infliction, all of these things has to be put into consideration what it means if a thing is intelligent. And she promises you a reward at the end. And there's certain discoveries on what does that actually mean and how that entails when an artificial intelligence promises you something and then breaks it. Yeah. Can it, how can it break something if it was rationally going to give you something?
0: Yeah, as you go progress through the game, it almost seems like um, Gladys becomes less and less artificial, and you start to really question what her motives are. So, brilliant game. Even if you're not like a hardcore video gamer, you can really get into it. It's it's pretty easy and laid back. Uh, not easy in difficulty. It's a puzzle game. It's a puzzle game, so it's very accessible. You don't have to worry about like first person shooter stuff or like people attacking you. Um, so you can kind of go at it at your own pace. But um...
1: What it does is, it, and there's probably going to be a summary for this, um, one of the big things I love about not only Kurt Von stories, but these sci-fi stories, short or no- novel or novella form as well, even video game, is the scariest thing to me, Kenneth, is about motive, right? What is the motive of a thing we create? Uh, mm-hmm. an artificial intelligent, a robot, machine. This is the whole premise of Terminator, right? The motive of Skynet. Yeah. It, that's the scariest thing for us as humans is, you know, we create automation things to create our cars for us, right? But by the time they get motive developed, like these creatures, these, I say creatures, but these machines develop motive, That that's the, where we really have to face these tough questions of, okay, what are we really dealing with here?
0: Mhm. Yeah. So uh, that's epicac for you. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and jump into our rating for it. Um, for those of you that are new, I have a rating system that's unique to this podcast. It goes from bookshelf worthy, buy, library, spark notes, and pass, and that's from best to worst. So, Alex, since you're the guest, I'll let you rate this first.
1: Okay. So, um, can I uh, can I throw a little wrench in here?
0: Like a little, uh, yeah. Okay,
1: so obviously a short story. You can't put it on a bookshelf because it is just five pages. What, how many pages did you print there? Five or six? Yeah. But it does belong in the Welcome to Monkey House collection, which I will say is bookshelf worthy. Now, some stories on there aren't, but some stories like Epicac make book, the Welcome to Monkey House definitely a bookshelf worthy
0: yeah I think if we're gonna cop out and rate the whole book as a whole with all the short stories, I think it's bookshelf worthy uh if I'm looking just at epicac itself um this is tough. I'm like jumping between two different ratings here um i'm gonna go with buy. you know what I'm gonna go with buy. um uh, it was. It's really quick to get through, and it's very direct, like Alex was saying. So you can make uh, your way through it, and, and you know there's not a lot of characters to have to remember. Um, but the ending is what just really got me and put it over the top. It's just almost really heartbreaking to see Epicac crank out all those poems before its itself. destruction. Yeah.
1: Now, what's great is Kenneth gave it a buy review, but can I give you a little uh, secret? You actually don't have to buy this. This is free online. Yeah. So it's a buy with a little asterisk next to it. It's free.
0: Yeah. So I think if you just Google Epicac short story, Kurt Vonnegut, you can find a free PDF on it uh, from the first page of the Google results. So definitely check it out. And when we come back from the break, we'll be looking at our second short story for this episode titled All the King's Horses. So stick around for that. Colonel Brian Kelly, his huge figure blocking off the light that filtered down the narrow corridor behind him, leaned for a moment against the locked door in agony of anxiety and helpless rage. The small oriental guard sorted through a ring of keys, searching for the one that would open the door. Colonel Kelly listened to the voices inside the room. Welcome back to this episode of Book Blurbs. Before the break, we talked about Kurt Vonnegut's short story Epicac from Welcome to the Monkey House. Now we're going to jump into another short story from that collection titled All the King's Horses. So, Alex, uh, overall thoughts and feelings about this short story? Um, was it- Be honest.
1: Okay. I actually fell asleep during halfway. So and it was funny, it was actually during like the climax I was falling asleep. Um look. You get hit and misses as an author, right? And look, J.K. Rowling did the stupid what's that what's that story after Harry Potter, the Oh, The Cursed Child? No, the 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 non Harry Potter book that she wrote right after Harry Potter. The Casual Vacancy?
0: Yeah. I liked that one.
1: It's a it's a miss. So <laughs> Yeah, has hit misses. Now, Kurt Vonnegut was dealing with a a more serious issue with this one than he did with Epicac. And we're dealing with, during the um, advent of the Korean War, we're dealing with the late 50s here with this story, and there's a lot of input in communism and essentially guerrilla warfare in this um, story.
0: Yeah, so what happens in this story is we have Colonel Brian Kelly... He's leading a group of uh, 15 other Americans, including his wife, Margaret, and his kids. And they're supposed to be on course to a military base in India. Um, But they encounter a storm, and on route, they um, get blown off course, and they crash land uh, somewhere on the Asiatic mainland. And they end up in the grasp of this horrific communist guerrilla war chief P. Yang and he's just a very like sadistic cruel human being Um, along with P. Yang he's got a Russian advisor accompanying him called Major Barzov and he's kind of there supervising um, like the communist activities going on at that camp Um,
1: I know I didn't read most of it but it's P. Yang not P. Yang I just want to clarify that
0: are you sure? Oh, yep. It is P. Ying. I wrote it down wrong, so thank you. You paid attention enough to get the name right. <laughs> so, Colonel Kelly and uh, his group of 15 Americans are prisoners of P. Ying, and P. Ying is kind of bored off in his remote camp, and so he devises this really evil plan to kind of entertain himself and proposes to Colonel Kelly that if he is willing to participate in a game of chess and if he wins, he will let him and the Americans go free. However, if he loses every time a chess piece is taken away in their game, Colonel Kelly loses the life of that person so whoever is standing in and representing like the knight or the rook if that rook gets taken away uh, by one of uh, peeing's pieces then the person representing that rook or knight or bishop or whatever it is has to be taken off the board and executed right then and there so extremely high stakes game sadistic yeah um and he's not willing to make exceptions for even the wife or the kids. Um, so we've also got in the party of the Americans, we've got this very young, nervous, uh, corporal who's very worried about what's going to happen to them. We've got this, uh, more tough sergeant who's very loyal, it seems, to Colonel Kelly. Uh, we've got the pilots and, uh, kind of a host of other soldiers that are with them in addition to his wife and kids. So Colonel Kelly, of course, has to agree to play this uh, twisted chess game. And P. Yang is true to his word, and every time he loses a piece, he pauses the game to pull the person off the chessboard and execute them. And they proceed throughout the game. If someone tries to run off the board they are essentially forfeiting their life and have to be executed. So they're kind of trapped in this game, and the only way out is to win.
1: Wait, so that reminds me of something.
0: What does that remind you of?
1: Um, the scene in Harry Potter. In, was it Chamber of Secrets?
0: No, the very first one, Sorcerer's Stone. So, is
1: it Sorcerer's Stone? Okay, so that's when they were on the giant chessboard. Yeah, the wizard And chess. Ron Weasley... Uh, First time he displayed anything brave or heroic was uh, he was on the he was on the horse.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I that reminds me of And he
0: sacrifices himself to put the other the opponent in the Yeah, he sacrificed
1: the statue he was on.
0: But then in the movie you see him get knocked off and you're like, Oh gosh, Ron's really
1: hurt. So that's what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a physical life size chessboard essentially
0: between Corporal Kelly and Ping. Yeah. And so as the game goes on, uh, Colonel Kelly realizes that he can win the game. There's an opening, but the catch is he has to sacrifice one of his pieces to put P. Ying in check, and one of those pieces is represented by one of his very young sons. And so Colonel Kelly kind of weighs his options, and it's like, well, do I sacrifice my one son and let the rest of us live, or is his life more important than everyone else's? And should I just try and defend him? Um, so he ultimately decides to use his son to get the piece. And then of course, Ying takes the bait and, uh, captures the piece representing Kelly's son. And, you know, of course his wife, Margaret is super upset that, uh, Kelly would even consider sacrificing the son to win the game. Um and she's, you know, very protesting it and everything and P. Ying is ruthless and says that the rules are the rules and if there weren't any rules then why would we even play a game? And has the son like pulled off to go be executed. But then this whole time that this has been happening on this overlook where P. Ying is seated, Along with Major Barzov, the Russian advisor, there's been this. um, It's not clear if she's like a prostitute or a slave or if she's just like this girl that happens to be there. But she uh, she pulls out a hidden knife and stabs P. Yang. Uh, He falls off the edge and she falls over with him and they both die. And Major Barzov um, takes over the game for P. Yang. But he agrees to play without using his twisted rules of having to kill anyone, so it's just like a regular chess match now. And Kelly, with his setup that he had done with his son's piece, is able to put Major Barzov in check and then win the game. And Major Barzov, you know, offers to play another game. You know, just regular chess, none of these uh, weird, crazy rules, because he wants to prove that his Russian intelligence is superior to that of Americans. It's that time of the Cold War. Um, But, you know, understandably, Kelly has been through enough with this stressful game and uh, tells him, you know, maybe another day we'll play. And so that's kind of how the story ends, and Barzov lets them go free and escape. So
1: there's some things I want to bring up on this story that I do find it, it, it hits home to One of them is the ethical dilemma of how do you weigh lives, right? Um, How do you weigh, uh, essentially, if you're a trolley and you have to pick the left (laughs) track and the right track, essentially, do you kill five people to save 10? Do you kill your son to save 100? Do you kill this dog to save one person that you have no idea? And that comes up. And... I don't know if you're very familiar. There's a short story. I forgot who wrote it, but it was in a burning building, okay? It's a very small story. And this this person, this nurse, was running by this room and hears a crying child, okay? And in that room was a bunch of um, embryo tubes. The nurse had a choice between carrying 100 tubes or saving the one child. Hmm. The story doesn't tell you how it ends, but... Those are very big questions when it comes to, you know, you have a group and, and this colonel, you know, they're these military personnel, they're all about the whole, right? They're not about the individual when it comes to protecting your interest. And so the colonel was viewing this from a strictly military standpoint, that one life, you can sacrifice one life to save the whole. And that's what he was going at. But the fact that it was his kid, which, by the way, who put his wife and his kids in this predicament? I don't know. That's not a really good father. Great colonel, not a good father. <laughs> but you got to have those conflicts, and you will have those conflicts in war. Um, but you have to stick to your guns. It is about the whole is what you have to deal with. Now, I find it interesting. So the Cold War started in the, the forty-six, roughly in nineteen forty-six. Yeah, pretty shortly um,
0: after World War Two. So.
1: There's almost still a slightly positive view on a Russian, which I find is interesting. The Russian looks like the better
0: of the two here. Yeah, positive. like the more compassionate and yeah, understanding. He used
1: to, now, those viewpoints will definitely change 10 years if Kurt Vonnegut wrote this in the 60s.
0: I think this one was 1953.
1: Yeah, so this is right when the Cold War started, um, but before the space race, definitely. And we're dealing with a com you know, communist guerrilla warfare, PA, Pyeong, Um, this is Korean war influence. So we definitely have a negative light on those individuals, that sort of side of the world. But I really do like, I do, I do like the conflict
0: between the colonel,
1: him being the colonel and him being the father.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I'll do my normal author bios feel uh, in a future episode coming up later this month. Um, But just for the sake of time, I left that out this time. But if you know anything about Kurt Vonnegut, uh, he served in the military and he was there for the bombings in Dresden during World War II. Uh, And that had a profound impact on his life. And um, he's very much uh, anti-war. And I think you can kind of see this in this short story. Uh, where he's almost describing warfare as, like, this game, and the soldiers are, like, pawns in this game. Well, look at the title. Yeah, the title, All the King's Horses.
1: You know, horses are tools, right? They're, um, you may have an emotional attachment to them.
0: But they're not human. They're just
1: strictly strategic. Mm-hmm. Horses are strictly t- strategic. And the king, you know, there's different ways you can interpret that. Obviously, in a micro scale, it's the Colonel Brian Kelly here in this story, the king, right? But in war there is no king it's really countries and nations and sort of these large-scale entities that are making these decisions and we're just left with the crumbs of warfare
0: right yeah we're left there to pick up the pieces and destruction of whatever we can um so yeah i mean it's again a very straightforward story i think it took a little long to get things set up. uh, It almost drags a little bit in the introduction, and uh, maybe that's what caused you to start falling asleep. Well, I fell asleep when the chess match
1: began. And look, I'm an avid fan of chess. Like, I play chess, and I don't think you play chess, Kenneth, right?
0: I've dabbled in it, but I couldn't tell you the rules or how the pieces can move. It's but been a it, while.
1: Uh, look, I love chess, but I can tell that this chess game was going to be like one of those, oh, it's it's, it's finished in five moves because it's a short story, you know? You can't have a, a legitimate chess match to last four hours, but
0: uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so why don't we go ahead and rate it? Um, I'll go first this time, and I'm going to say All the King's Horses by Kurt Vonnegut is... On a scale of bookshelf-worthy buy, library, spark notes, and pass, I'm going to give it the rating of spark notes. <laughs> That's the lowest rating I've given so far on this podcast, but that isn't to take away from Kurt Vonnegut or his writing ability or even this story. Um, I still think it's worth you know knowing the details of it and maybe the plot structure and how he constructs it. Because I think it's a unique concept Um, But like Alex said I immediately thought of the wizard chest From Harry Potter when I got to the Chest mask in this short story So Alex what's your uh, Rating for all the King's Horses Well here's
1: the problem I rated Welcome to the Monkey House As bookshelf worthy This is inside Welcome to the Monkey House So the book as I said Is bookshelf worthy The story I'm putting as spark notes But the reason why I don't say a pass is because here the 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 what we're dealing with as a as a story, the narration to what you can learn from it is definitely worth knowing now the story itself I think was not strong. it's not a strong Kurt Vonnegut story. the writing in the narrative and plot structure I don't personally think it was strong, but the context of a story or the content as well. Is definitely worth knowing, and so it's it's a spark note, and that's how I finished reading this. Was the spark notes was just simply shorter than the second half of the story. The spark
0: notes was shorter than the short story. <laughs> yeah,
1: and so you know, it's definitely a spark note for me, Kenneth.
0: I think knowing you too, you may have been missing his signature sci-fi uh, twists or genre elements in this story. It's, well, it gave it to you too early. It's like, here's this chess
1: match using real humans. That's not a twist. That's just sadistic, but it's not a twist.
0: Right, there's not necessarily uh, a twist like that. It's more like the moral dilemma that it builds up to.
1: Now, if I I, I want to step back, and if I was Kurt Vonnegut writing this, I, I would like to tell you how I would have finished it. Um, I personally think with... He set up Colonel Brian Kelly as a super strategic... He almost sacrificed his son, right?
0: Yeah, he almost goes into the zone where he, he's super focused and can see like several moves ahead. So
1: the twist to me would be Colonel Brian Kelly follows through and he's the last one living out of his group. Mm. Yes, he won... But he killed everyone else in the process. That, to me, would have been a much stronger Vonnegut-esque story to me. But he gave he had some sort of hope, I guess, for his characters. And he he showed that with Brian Kelly. He had hope for Brian Kelly, I guess.
0: Yeah. So that has been All the King's Horses by Kurt Vonnegut. Alex, thank you for joining me on this episode. Um, Well, thank you for inviting me. It was such an honor to be on here thanks for listening to this episode of book blurbs. Follow me on social media at book blurbs 19 on Facebook and Twitter. Send me an email at bookblurbs 19 at gmail.com and go to anchor.fm slash book blurbs to record a voice message that I can use in future episodes. You can talk about a book I reviewed in a previous episode, or share your excitement or recommendations for books that are coming out. I'd love to include you and make you a part of the show. Thanks again for listening. My name is Kenneth. I'm your host, and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Book Blurbs.